someone said to me earlier, uh, I don't quite understand the title of your message. And I said, there is no understanding it. Uh, it is, if died, why? If raised, then. And as we go through these verses uh, before us this morning, I, I think that caption will make a little more sense to you. We've been studying this book of Colossians in, in great detail. And over the, the weeks that we've been working our way through not only the introduction, but through chapter one and then on into chapter two, and now we're rounding out chapter two, getting into chapter three. One thing that is emerging very true is that this book of Colossians is, is one of the most Christ-centric books in all of the New Testament. As has been said and was said earlier, it's all about Jesus. Uh, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else but Jesus. What a, what a great... Uh, simple phrase for you and I to hold on to as we navigate through our Christian life. You know, Jesus, it's nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And as the Apostle Paul had, had heard from Epaphras about these believers in the city of Colossae, he had also been given the information that caused him to write this letter uh, with several motives, as, as I said, one was to inform them of his, his circumstances. Uh, another, and we're dealing with this a little this morning, was to uh, warn them and educate them uh, about this thing that was infiltrating the, the lives of the believers. It was in germ form, and it would not coagulate and become formally something until the second century BC, but by the second century it became known as Gnosticism. At the time that Paul is writing this letter, it's still in its germ form. It's, it's a variety of different uh, erroneous teachings that had to do with um, confusing the basic tenets of the Christian faith whispering things in the lives of believers as if the Christian faith or Christianity itself could be improved upon in any way through things like legalism, through things like uh, super-secret spiritual knowledge, through uh, philosophy, and through asceticism. And this greatly concerned the apostle. Now, we have dealt in previous studies with uh, some of these things. We've talked about uh, the legalism that those that were whispering th those ideas into the lives of believers there in Colossae, uh, that there was something yet that they needed to adhere to or to do in order to be more of a genuine Christian. And we're not absent or ignorant of legalisms today. Though the book was written, you know, 
Thousands of years ago, there are still whispers of legalism that infiltrate the church today that, for instance, uh, things like maybe one day is uh, more holy than another day, uh, that a certain type of dress is more acceptable to God than uh, another type of dress, that there's a, an action that is more acceptable in the life of a believer than another action. And yet, though some of us today would acknowledge that legalisms uh, really do not apply in the life of a believer and their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, what we need to remember is that this book was written to an entire world, not just to the Western Hemisphere. And if some of the things that are being taught in this passage and in this book were brought to other parts of the world where there are uh, extreme legalism uh, issues attached to a specific religious belief, it would, as someone once said, rock their boat. Paul is seeking to have the believer in Colossae come to terms with not only their salvation, but the work of sanctification. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But as though there is something that the believer can do outwardly that will change them inwardly. And that is absolutely opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit once believed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is Christ in us. And so there is nothing that you or I can do outwardly that, that changes us inwardly. That is the internal work of the Spirit of God. And just like salvation is an internal work of the Spirit of God, so is our sanctification, our nearness and our closeness to God. The germ form of Gnosticism was also dealing with special secrets, uh, as though there was some spiritual secret knowledge that if you only a few could know and, and they would be the ones that... Uh, would have God's favor. Uh, he warned them against philosophical truth as it related to um, salvation and the sanctification of the believer, that, that philosophy isn't, isn't another way. It's not Christ plus um, specific rules and regulations. It's not Christ plus a right philosophy. It's not Christ plus a super secret knowledge. It's not Christ plus anything. And he is seeking to deal with the subject of asceticism that is breathing its air into and around the life of the believers there in Colossae. In the Middle Ages, asceticism was uh, practiced by many, uh, the beating of oneself, um, the wearing of 
undergarments that were itchy specifically to make one irritated. Uh, Martin Luther, the classic um, reformer of, of 1400s or so, uh, as a monk, he would lay naked in his uh, cell. As someone else said, in the cold winters of a European uh, environment, specifically to, to suffer in order, in his mind, to get closer to God and to be nearer uh, to what he believed to be spirit, uh, true spirituality. They would do things as not eat for long periods of time, not even speak for as long as a year. And Paul is destined and called to educate and illuminate the, the Christian in Colossae, just as the, the living word of God is destined to educate and illuminate us as to those trappings. As he told them in the second chapter, verse 1, he said, I'm in great conflict for you. He told them in the fourth verse of the second chapter that I don't want anyone to deceive you with persuasive words. He told them in the eighth verse of the second chapter, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. And he reminded them in the ninth and tenth verse of chapter two that it is in Christ that the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily and that you, and I would say I, that we, every believer, is complete in him. And so now Paul's going to address uh, this lie that, as I said, is in germ form and will eventually become known in the second century as asceticism. And once we, you know, traverse over into that territory, the question arises, what then is asceticism? It was good for me to remind myself and look into this again. At its core, asceticism means that the way you become spiritual uh, or spiritually mature, rather, the way you get closer to God, the way you uh, invite a more deeper relationship with the true and the living God, is that you must suffer. There must be suffering that's going on in your life. And as I mentioned just a few moments ago, it would be self-imposed, oftentimes through uh, things like not eating, not sleeping, making yourself uh, vulnerable to inclement weather. And that if you weren't suffering at its core, asceticism says that if you're not suffering for God, you're not doing your relationship with God right. That's what asceticism uh, is and was. But we must remember that we find that that flies, uh, it's a polar opposite to 
what Jesus taught us, and he is the, the definition of, of Christianity. Jesus is the, the definition of what it means to want to be near God and to walk with God. And that nowhere in the New Testament is, is that kind of uh, mindset given to us by the Lord. In fact, he tells us in John 15, he says, uh, I want my words to remain in you, that my joy re might remain in you, and that your joy may be filled. His intent for every disciple was for them to have a joyful life, not a life of self-imposed suffering. Now, as um, these that were whispering these lies would come to the believers in Colossae, there were two camps in this uh, germ form of Gnosticism at the time. There were two specific uh, lines of thinking. The first was that all material, the entire material world was evil and bad. And in order to be closer to God, one needed to deny themselves of anything that was uh, physical. As we read a moment ago about, you know, taste not, touch not, not to have anything to do with anything physical, that uh, the, um, a person is, is a, a body and a soul, a spirit and a body, and that it was the spirit that was the only thing that was important. And Jesus did teach uh, the, the principle of self-denial. We know that he said to his disciples, if any man will come after me, he must, what? Deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me daily. That's what the Lord said. But Jesus wasn't talking about self-imposed, specific denial of, of, a, of a specific thing. He was talking about the self-absorbed lifestyle, a life in which the individual and themselves becomes predominantly important of how they navigate through life. Jesus was saying, no, it's, you're to love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and to love others as you already love yourself. Now, the ascetic and those that would eventually become Gnostics were saying that all physical matter was evil. And so, therefore, you were not to have any involvement with it. But you remember uh, Jesus talking about to the uh, Pharisees that uh, they challenged him that his disciples did not continue with a ceremonial washing of hands before they ate. It wasn't a commandment. It was a tradition that had developed. And they challenged Jesus that his disciples wouldn't wash their hands before they ate. And you remember what his response was. In Matthew 15, he told his disciples, it's, it's not that which goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but it's that which comes out. In other words... When he said to them that it's what comes out of a man's mouth, uh, it was Peter who approached him and said, 
Well, I'm not sure I quite understand what you're saying. Will you explain? He says, are you still without understanding? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, he says, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they are the thing that defiles a man. The ascetic would say, Touch not, taste not, you can't have anything to do with that because you are therefore then not spiritual. That would be one camp. A second camp of the ascetic, though, said that man is a spirit and a body and, and the spirit is what's important. The body doesn't really matter. So in this second camp, what they did was they went ahead and said, the body can do anything the body wants to do. That it doesn't really matter because what's important is the spirit. So in the second camp of asceticism, they would go ahead and give themselves over to all kinds of licentious action and, and things because in their mind, it didn't matter to God what their body did. It only mattered that their spirit. Now, before we check out this morning and go, well, I don't get that, and what does that have to do with us today, we may find uh, shadows of that same kind of thinking fast forward, even in the Western culture uh, of today's world. Have you ever ran into someone who's, who knows that you're a, a professing Christian and you may have shared that with them, and their response to you is, well, I'm not a Christian, but I, I am spiritual. And so what that individual is saying is that they're aware that there's a, a dynamic beyond just their physical body, but they're not willing to let the God of the Bible begin to dictate to them the way in which they should live. In other words, they've decided that they want to be able to do life and do with their body whatever they want to do with their body, but they will tell you that they are spiritual. That, beloved, is similar to what the ascetic would have done in just letting themselves live dangerously Believing, you've heard this phrase, oh, but God knows my heart. And so Paul wants to deal with this kind of error that's being whispered in, into the lives of, of Christians there in Colossae. And so we find that he now brings it to the point, if I draw our attention again to verse 20. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. And what he's referring to there is that once the Colossae believer came to Christ, there was a death to the things in the world that 
used to hold them, that used to bind them, that used to direct them in their thinking and in their actions, the basic principles of the world. If you died with Christ uh, from these basic principles, there's been a death that's taken place. And in the life of the believer this morning, beloved, if, if you are a Christian and Christ is in you, a death has taken place. No longer are the principles of this world the principles that govern your life. Paul tells us in Romans that we've been set free. There's a power at work in us. I don't have to sin any longer. I've been set free from the bondage of sin. Do I still stumble and fall and, and make mistakes? Yes, but I'm no longer under its power. I died with Christ. You died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. He says, then why? Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Interestingly enough, in the original language, the tone of that word is somewhat, as someone once said, like a sanctified scorn. It's, it's why. Why do you enter into, again, the regulations of do's and don'ts in order to accomplish some sort of greater spirituality in your life? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. And he's endeavoring to, as I've mentioned weeks before, to uh, lead the Colossae believer to a greater sense of maturity. And, and here is the, the core of the truth that he's dealing with, is that if, I touched on it a moment ago, but if at salvation... The living God saved you. The Holy Spirit revealed his son to you and your sin. And in that moment, whenever that was, you and I recognized our, our depravity, our desperate position before a holy God and said, God, forgive me. I need your salvation. And the living God steps in and takes up residence in your life. Now listen, if that is true, and it is true, you see, the devil wants to be successful in keeping a person from that truth. And if he is unsuccessful in keeping a person from the truth of the salvific work of the Spirit of God in the life of an individual, then the next thing he wants to do is lie to that same individual that now that they are saved, their sanctification depends on things that they do. It's enough for God to save you, but now let me whisper in your ear, in order for you to be close to God, this now depends on you. 
and the things you do right and the things you do wrong. According to the commandments and doctrines of men. And I love what someone once said. It's like, you know, if, if a person starts to bend or lean toward, uh, oh, now it's up to me to keep my, my relationship with God close as though sanctification is separate or different than salvation, is not salvation completely a work of God? Yes. Then is not sanctification completely a work of God? And I love the phrase, if someone begins to lean toward the do's and the don'ts to think that their relationship with God is now better or lesser, it's like that kind of lifestyle sucks all the oxygen out of the air of an individual. And they find themselves frustrated and unfruitful in the things that God has planned for their lives and wants to do. It's grace. It's not works. That, that kind of thinking would be a work-centered uh, sanctification. It's a grace-centered sanctification, just as it is a grace-centered salvation, is what Paul is endeavoring to lay down. Now, asceticism, uh, making one suffer, oneself suffer, doing these things, uh, again, not an original thought, but true enough, must have some appeal, otherwise no one would want to do that. There must be something attractive about the concept of asceticism in order to get someone to, to buy into it, and certainly there were those in Colossae that were starting to buy into this, and he addresses it in verse 23. He said, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. <clears throat> in other words, you or I, you know, we may have in our Christian track at some point found someone that, you know, lets us know that they've they've fasted for 20 days or you know they've they've prayed for 12 hours in a row or something and and maybe in our conceptual mind we say, oh that person must be more they're way more spiritual than I am and so there's an appearance of of these things it, it looks spiritual but there is there's no value in a self-imposed works-oriented sanctification against, there's no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What does he mean by that? I, I shared it with someone on the way over here. I, I love this phrase. The flesh will never agree with you in its own crucifixion. You know why? Because when you get to that point where you're, you're ready to nail the last hand to the cross, you can't. It's an impossibility. You're a hand short. It takes a source and a power greater than yourself, outside of yourself, in order for the denial of that flesh 
and the, the crucifixion of that flesh. Paul said, I die daily to take place. Self-imposed, works-oriented sanctification has no, no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul is endeavoring to remind them, as the Spirit of God would remind us, that no, it takes a power greater. And that at salvation, there was a death to the basic principles of the world that took place in your life, in my life. A spiritual work has happened. And at the same time that there was a death, so we enjoyed last weekend a, a baptismal service where uh, a sister chose to enter into the waters again, that that's symbolic that when you, you go into that body of water is like a watery grave and when you come out of that water it's like you are raised in newness of life. The Apostle Paul deals with that, that same truth here in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, if then you were raised with Christ. Now here's one thing that you note takers might really appreciate and I want you to uh, perhaps mark your Bible or mark your notebook or mark the notebook or the Bible of the person next to you. Circle the word if in verse 1 of chapter 3. Circle or make note of the word if in verse 20 of chapter 2. Now what's genuinely true, important, and illuminating about that word if is that it is a Greek preposition that can be translated two ways. The two ways that that Greek preposition can be translated are, as we read it in the translations, if and also since. Now, I got out my, you know, my Greek book this morning. I said, I, I wonder. And sure enough, if you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation, and do you remember what took place there? Uh, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness right after his time in the Jordan River and John saw the, the Spirit of God alight upon him as a dove and immediately with that uh, anointing and the declaration of the beginning of his, his earthly ministry, he's thrown, well, he, he, he's out into the desert. And there in the desert, what happens? Many of you know the story already. Satan comes in, and uh, Matthew's record tells us specifically that after those 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry of fasting. He was hungry. And so the devil comes to him <clears throat> with a very logical, reasonable answer to what Jesus, as the Son of Man, is experiencing at that moment. He says to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. In other words, 
if you're really who you say you are, why don't you use your divine power to, to take care of your immediate need right now and satisfy this, this uh, longing or this desire? Matthew chapter 4. Well, guess what? That Greek preposition there in Matthew 4 is the same word as here. And what we know grammatically is that Satan wasn't saying, if you're the son of God, he was saying to Jesus, since you are the son of God, I already know you're the son of God. I'm here to tempt you, to get you to relinquish that divine place you have as the coming Messiah who, who had he known, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory, the scriptures tells us. And in Matthew 4, he says, since you're the son of God, then go ahead and command these stones to be made bread. Infer that same translation of this preposition here to your life and mine. Since you were raised with Christ. Since you died with Christ. There is a, there is Resurrection life going on inside the life of every believer since you were then raised with Christ. I think often uh, the, the Christian may misinterpret what resurrection life looks like. Resurrect, as though resurrection life happening on the inside of a believer has to be demonstrative, must be some, uh, you know, flamboyant action that draws attention to oneself when in actuality resurrection life is a, an unmovable joy and peace that is a, a byproduct of the indwelling spirit of God. And since, I hope, if nothing else, we walk away this morning, since you've been raised with Christ, you came to faith, you died. And at the same time, the death took place, a resurrection took since you've been raised with Christ, then the Apostle Paul then begins to redirect the thinking of the Colossae believer away from the erroneous ideas of legalistic approaches to a nearness to God, away from philosophical approaches to nearness to God, away from spiritual secrets that would draw you nearer to God, and away from self-imposed suffering that supposedly will make you nearer to God, and just embrace the reality that you've been raised with Christ. So, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And what things are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Obviously, more likely, not obviously, but certainly is the word I would use. Certainly, the Apostle Paul, in his great understanding of Old Testament truth, 
if you look at Psalm 110, the first verse of Psalm 110, it talks about, David talks about, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what Paul is telling the Colossae believer and what the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, would tell you and I this morning is that because we are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. The fact that God is sovereign. He hasn't relinquished his sovereignty. He is still sovereign in the earth. And Christ is at his right hand. And it's so easy in the course of a a given day of earthly news, whether it's an election or a, a mandate or some passing of a bill or some introduction of a new law into an assembly or or the tragedy of our nation turning our back on our own in a foreign country. It's easy to start to think that God relinquishes sovereignty. He has not. Seek to remember that God is sovereign, is what Paul is saying. And in a raised approach, a resurrected life approach, to each day to remember, okay, man, this is difficult, but God is sovereign. That that's, that's what's happening in the heavens where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Seek those things which are above. And then in verse 2, he, he compounds those two things with the word set. And he says, so set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. I love the phrase, and you can walk away with it today, seek and set, seek and set. Say that with me. Seek and set. Okay? So now he, he, he drives the, the nail home with not only seek to remember the sovereignty that God has not relinquished, but now set your mind on those same things which are above. Uh, many of you followed me. I'll try to make this quick, but many of you followed me uh, in my journey of sailing for 10 years. And you were very gracious to allow your pastor to look into what it meant to sail a boat. And I made lots of mistakes. Uh, but I'll remember very clearly one protocol that is driven home as I was pondering this word set uh, in preparation for this morning. There was a, an anchoring protocol that when taking our coastal navigational course was uh, taught. And so we got in this uh, sailboat and sailed from Monterey, the port in Monterey, all the way across Monterey Bay uh, over to Santa Cruz. And as we approached Santa Cruz, we changed our course a bit to head toward a small little enclave in Aptos. Uh, and right there in this bay is where our instructor gave us the protocol of anchoring. And so in order to anchor properly, there are a couple things that need to happen. You're, 
your anchor line needs to be clearly marked at, at 25 foot length so that when it's going down, you can count. I'm at 25, I'm at 50, I'm at 75, I'm at 100, I'm at 125 feet, whatever. Oftentimes, in many vessels, there's a, there's a sounding instrument that tells you where you are and your approximate depth. And so you drop that anchor, and, and I didn't really understand that this is how anchors work, but as it gets into the sand groove, there, there's these teeth that come up. And what you're asked to do is actually put the, the vessel in reverse and pull the vessel back until the teeth of that anchor set themselves into the bedrock of the bottom. And then so that way, no matter what comes, that vessel is tied to that set and you're safe. You can go to sleep. You can do whatever. I mean, you, that vessel's not going anywhere. Terrible illustration. But I use it for you and I this morning to say, hey, set, make a clear set of, of your mind on the things that are above. And it will keep the vessel of your trajectory through life in a safe way. That's what Paul is saying. The things above, not on the things of earth. Verse 3, for you died. And he revisits what happened in verse 20. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and it more abundantly. He's talking about that resurrected life that he desires that each one of his disciples have. And beloved, listen this morning. You are watching at home. Listen, you won't find that life outside of anything except Christ. That life exists. It's hidden with Christ in God. Last night we had the joy of celebrating with Chad and Marina Lumbus. They're they did a reveal party. Marina's going to have a little girl. And so we're rejoicing, right? But that little infant is hidden in her womb. That's where that life is. And if you are seeking life, the life of Christ, you're not going to find it in philosophy. You're not going to find it searching the stars. You're not going to find it in some supernatural secret. You're not going to find it in some sort of self-imposed suffering. It's, it's in Christ. It's hidden in Christ with God. Paul is seeking to tell these Colossian believers, stop listening to the lie and just embrace the truth. Because when Christ, who is our life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. We'll save that subject for another time. We join me as we pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the truth. That the life we seek, the life we desire, 
the life we have is a life that has been given to us through resurrection power. But we don't earn it. There's nothing we can do that will cause us to know your nearness even more. In the week ahead, Lord, there will be many challenges to us knowing that sanctification work that's going on as you, as you make us more like the person and the work of your grace. Wanting Jesus to be reflected in our, in our countenance, in our, in our conversation with others. Lord, how can we but depend on you there's nothing that we can do except trust you. So we invite you to come again this morning as we close our time together and thanking you for reminding us, Lord, that this life that we have is hidden with Christ in God. And we will choose, Lord, to live this week ahead in that truth because you you died and you were raised Lord we died and we are now raised and we worship you today in Jesus name